Hello and welcome to another episode of the Alliance Theater Podcast. I'm sure you're wondering who is this new and unfamiliar voice that you're hearing. Well, my name is Mashawn D. Simon, and I am the Marketing and Public Relations Manager for the Alliance Theater. I'm excited to share with you um, a conversation that I had with the writer and director of um, the Alliance Theater's newest and upcoming production, The Hot Wing King. If you're not familiar with Katori, she is an award-winning, a Pulitzer Prize award-winning playwright. She is the creator of P-Valley. She is a showrunner. She is a director. She is an actress. She is a mother. She is a black woman. And she is committed to telling stories that we don't often get to see um, on our stages or on our screens. She is, for all intents and purposes, a griot. And I had the privilege, I had the, the honor and the privilege of, of sitting down with Katori and, and getting to know a little bit about her about what she um, is committed to as it pertains to the arts, about what she considers to be her, her mission and her, and, her, and her purpose in life, and why she tells the kind of stories that she tells. So I'm excited for you all to get to hear what she has to say, not only about the Hot Wing King, but about her as a person and a creator, and about um, the state of, 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 of art and theater and, and, and entertainment today. So, I know it's cliche, but sit back and enjoy my conversation with Katori Hall. It is so great to talk to you and to learn more about you and to learn more about Hot Wing King. So thank you so much for, for this time. Um, I first want to say, um, not only am I excited and not only is the Alliance excited, but Atlanta is excited about Hot Wing King. Oh my God, I hope so. I Atlanta hope is, so. Atlanta is excited. Um, I have been in countless meetings, countless situations. Um, even today, I was on a Zoom call with some people that was like really way outside of the Alliance. Uh -huh. And all people kept talking about was, oh my God, you work at the Alliance? Um, can I get tickets to Hot Wing King? And I was like, sure, you can log into AllianceTheater.org and purchase your tickets. Um, so Atlanta is excited. Atlanta is very excited about this show. Very, very excited about this show. So my first question is, why tell this show? Why tell this story? Um, and then what would you say it means for Atlanta, for Memphis, and for the community in which it represents. Absolutely. You know, as someone who grew up, as someone who other people considered marginalized, right? As a Black person, as a woman, as someone who was on the, the lower end of the socioeconomical totem pole, I grew up wanting to hold space for voice mm -hmm. and for other voices that weren't represented or were often misrepresented. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot to do with my intersectional identity. Mm -hmm. And so anyone can look at me and say, oh my God, she is not a gay Black man. However, 
I am an artist. However, I am a humanist and I believe we all can hold space for each other, whether it's just in our everyday lives or if it's through our work and I happen to be a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so I also am blessed in that I often use my own lived experience or the lived experiences of people who are very close to me as inspiration points. And so this particular story is based on my brother and his partner's life. It's not exact, but, you know, to have been a witness to their love and their struggle to love in the American South has been a great blessing to me. And I wanted to honor what I saw them go through, push through as these two resilient Black men who have made such a huge impression on me. Um, I wanted to you know, basically write this love letter to them. And in writing this love letter to them specifically, you know, include what I call their family, their friends, their, their found family that they have brought into the fold, whether it's, um, you know, other mentees or people that they've met in church or at the barber shop, like this particular story is steeped in so much truth. And yet there is invention and yet there is me inside of it. And yet there's other family members inside of it. And so this very specific story, I think, speaks to this very universal experience of love and love in different shades. It's platonic love, it's familial love, it's brotherly love, just all the different, different permutations of it and how it manifests within our community and also within ourselves. And so it is terribly important that as this person who has been a witness to Black love, and black love that is same gender same gender love to you know just hold space and hold a pause so that people can be blessed like I have been blessed as I have witnessed um you know these realities in my own life and so it's just an honor to be able to do that not just even as a storyteller but as a human being and so I'm so happy that you know, for Atlanta, for Memphis, for these particular cities to see themselves through a Southern lens. But as we all know, everyone has this very intersectional identity. And oftentimes within the Southern community, there's not this understanding that there is queerness and that there, that queerness can be embraced and that there is love and space for it, for folks who are a part of the community. Um, and, you know, just as it's a love letter to my to my, my family and my family, it's also a love letter to all the communities that reside within Memphis and Atlanta. I think it gets to the juxtaposition. Um, what I'm hearing you say or what's coming up for me is like, it's not just about representation. It's not just about um, creating a moment to sort of say, you get to be seen, but a, a way in which a portrayal, I think is what's coming up for me. And, and this realization that as you said we all have these intersecting spaces mm-hmm. intersecting identities these intersecting ways and it makes all of us sort of just a part of it and unique and individual but not so unique and individual because exactly like and i also yeah and i also just feel like you know 
the American family has been the subject of so many plays, so many, you know, sitcoms, so many, you know, uh, cinematic dramas, the, the American family and the deconstruction of it, the, you know, the exploration of it. But oftentimes the, the Black family is left out. And when the Black family is kind of brought into that space of interpretation, often we don't think of what it means to be Black and gay and all the intersectional identities that, you know, are in between. Um, and so I think what's so interesting about this play and like it's like quietly revolutionary is that it is taking apart this idea of not only um, the American family, but also the Black family and challenging it, deconstructing it and putting forth like this is actually a valid American family, a, a valid Black American family. And we don't ever really get to see that, whether it be on our stage or our stages or our screens. I don't know how quietly revolutionary this is. Uh, <laughs> I, I say quiet revolutionary in that. Um, it's not quiet. It's definitely not quiet. <laughs> but, not quiet. Sneaky, but sneaky, you know, sneaky. Because so, I think humor, using humor, um, allows people to kind of be like, okay, these people laugh like me, they love like me, they joke like me, and so I can see myself in, in them. And that's what I meant by the quiet revolutionary part of it. It, it humanizes people who we constantly, constantly cast aside um, through humor, through just being in the same room and breathing the same air, which is the beautiful hat trick of theater anyway, right? Where you automatically have to recognize humanity because these people are li living and breathing and speaking right in front of your very eyes. Like we are being brought into the living room, the bedroom, the kitchen, um, of, of folks who we think are not like us and yet they are just like us. Just like us, yeah. I, I was almost like saying softening the blow. Mm -hmm. Almost like softening the blow. Um, so with that in mind, um, the world knows you as this creative hit behind, mind, this genius, if you will, behind oh, people. God. No, uh, genius, that's my yes. Genius. We're calling you a genius. <laughs> e genius, Katori Hall. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you hope for those who don't know you, who only know you through P Valley, but don't know you through all of your other creative theatrical work. Mm. Uh, what are you hoping they discover about you and about storytelling and your mission mm. of storytelling? I just hope that they can see that. Every time I come to the page, I'm bleeding a bit. Mm -hmm. That it costs mm -hmm. to be a witness and it costs to be honest and it costs to be authentic. That is the cost of a true artist. And I pray that when people you come to this play or any other play, they, they understand that they are in the room with someone who thinks our lives, our mistakes, our dreams 
are worthy of an elevated artistic treatment. I love and care about Black people so much. And they are so deserving of hard work and for their stories to be told in ways in which, you know, they're blown away by their own journeys. That's what I, I pray is evident when people witness my work and interact with my work. I love that. I love that. Um, so it creates this question for me that like, the original production of The Hot Wing King, some believe was really impacted by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet, you know, you still were successful in it becoming, you know, at least critically acclaimed. Mm -hmm. uh, being that this is your first time directing it and doing it in Atlanta, where you now call Atlanta home. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what does it mean for you? How does it feel for you to be able to tell this story in a way in which you, I'm assuming, always wanted to tell it? Yeah. Um, and what are you hoping to get out of the experience? What's beautiful is that, you know, the signature production that got shut down by COVID-19 in March of 2020, it was very much what I wanted. Um, my creative partner, Steve Brodnax, himself a genius, um, really, really interpreted the play in such a beautiful way. And the only kind of disappointment that I had of that entire run was that we had this, what I call blackout night or what they call blackout night, where on, I think it was like, maybe it was like March 16th was the, was the day. It might've been March 24th, but whatever. Like later on in the, the month of March of 2020, it was only going to be black folks in the audience mm. um, to just create this safe space of, hey, this play was written for you, by you. Let's be in the room together and, and have this, you know, kind of church-like moment. Gotcha. And unfortunately, because of the shutdown, our show shut down on March 12th. Um, Broadway shut down and so everything else shut down that day. And um, we just didn't get that opportunity to be in the room with the community, you know. Um, and you know that was just a, a a a just a very unfortunate thing. And I feel like now in Atlanta, I'm not saying that it's you know only going to be black people in the audience, but I do know that there will be a lot of folks in the audience because it is Atlanta because it, it, you know, I haven't, I've only been here for the past, you know, two years, like we moved um, at the height of the pandemic from New York down to Atlanta. And I just must say, I can, I can, I can see us and I can feel us um, being, having such a strong cultural presence. And I do feel as though, this particular play and people kind of knowing other things that I'm connected to. I'm, I'm praying that we're going to draw crowds that um, look a lot, look, look a little different um, than the, the usual um, Alliance theater audience. And, you know, this is something that happens in every regional theater, right? Where just because of the, the history of theater and just, you know, audience development, where it oftentimes is hard to cultivate a Black audience. But I, you know, have talked extensively to the folks over there. And I know it's so important to make sure that, you know, the, the faces on 
the stage are, you know, reflected in the faces of the audience. Why Atlanta? I mean, you know, not to say that Atlanta isn't a place to move to, but I'm curious as to like what- For me, just why I moved to Atlanta? Well, you know, a lot of different reasons. You know, number one, I love the South. It's been interesting being a Southerner living in New York, a Memphian in Manhattan, um, you know, cooking neck bones on a Friday, and my neighbor would be like, hmm, what's that smell? Like, always being who I am wherever I go. And so to, you know, feel at home, um, I, I could have moved back to Memphis, but in terms of for work, I needed to to be in Atlanta because we do film P Valley, um, um, uh, at some of the studios uh, around here, and and so I felt like not only was my my work being served, but also that feeling of being at home. And I mean, I get to see my parents. I'm I'm in Mississippi every other week. Seeing like my husband. He'd be, he'd be like, oh, my God, <laughs> we're going to Mississippi again because that's where they stay now. So um, it's like what, five hour, five and yeah, five, five, ten. If you um, put your, your foot on the gas uh, drive. So that's kind of, that's why Atlanta like Memphis was, you know, um, probably a little a little too, too laid back <laughs> for my husband. So I think we split the difference and settled in Atlanta. And that's I cool. Yeah. It, it worked. It's been working out. Yeah, my husband's people are from Batesville, Mississippi. Okay. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I know that drive. I know, know that, that drive. Area. And it's, it is always great to get out there and spend time with my in-laws and just, it's very familiar. Like, they all live next to each other. And on Thursday, so-and-so cooking. On Tuesday, so-and-so cooking. On Wednesday, we just hanging out at somebody's house and drinking. Like, it's, I get it. And I didn't grow up in that experience. I'm from Atlanta, but it wasn't the same. Same, yeah. Um, and then I got a kind of like New York of the South feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess the next question, uh, there's several that I've been instructed to ask. And I'm like, <laughs> we'll see what happens. I want to try and see whatever we do. Um, but one of the things that I... Uh, have definitely appreciated um, about the excitement that is in the air as it pertains to Hot Wing King is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, there are individuals who are looking forward to seeing them themselves, mm-hmm. their, their faces, but their identities, their their experiences, their their emotions on this stage. And it's a pretty big deal that is happening on a Coca-Cola stage. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious as to like, and what one have you been hearing of some of that excitement, and two, what does that excitement do for a a, a team, um, a cast, um, as far as pressure is concerned, but also excitement. Child, we got to be good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that excitement means. I'm going first thing we to we almost saw that guy, even if it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> so that they know right. the pressure is on and what I mean good yeah yeah just being true it. I get it like digging deep and spending your soul because these people don't get this opportunity very often 
And man, what a gift. Yeah. What a gift to also as actors, you know, stepping into roles that seemingly feel custom made for you versus you having to stepping into another identity. A lot of people are using who they are as an inspiration jumping off point for the characters. And I think, you know, that oftentimes is rare in the American theater. And so I'm really proud that, you know, I, I, I can't speak to, you know, everyone's identity, but um, quite a few have expressed to me just how excited they are to step inside of a character um, whose skin just feels so comfortable on theirs, you know? And so, you know, for the audience, you know, hearing that they're excited, it just makes me want to go hard. I know it's going to make the actors want to go hard. I, I'm going to tell you, my creative team, they, they be bothering me. They, they texting me now because I need this approval. Like everybody is on their game. I love it. Everybody wants to do well for this audience because we know it's an important story and this audience is important. What is this experience like um, in comparison to the other projects and in comparison to um, P-Valley, but also the other things that you produce and, and written and directed and put on the stage? Think different levels. Um, I think with Hot Wayne King in particular, I think there's an understanding that there's possibly more beyond the the play version of this story. Um, it, it, it feels like it, it could live on the small screen in a certain way. And I think um, what's special about this particular moment is that it feels as though we may be getting a preview to what that, 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 that may feel like. It's just so rare that you get invited into your favorite character's home. Yeah. And the audience is going to get that entry point. It just feels like we're they're going to get in before the rest of the world, um, you know, learns who Big Charles is and learns who Dwayne and Cordell are. Um, it, it it's going to be this intimate yet epic experience. Mm. I like that intimate and epic. I like that. Those are very two very strong and. Spiritual words. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, trying to think whatever, what else I want to ask while I have you here. Um, <laughs> this has been a great, great conversation. Um, and like I told you, I think there are just so many people, especially on the Alliance team, who are just thankful and excited and invested um, in this opportunity and this experience to be a part of telling this story in whatever capacity they are playing their roles. Um, and so there was another question that someone told me to ask you about your evolution of creative work and ex expression. Yeah. Um, and so I told them I would make sure I asked that. Um, your thoughts on your evolution um, from your first production to now. My very, very first production that I've ever had. Oh, wow. Oh, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that I never 
ever let lack of skill or lack of knowledge stop me from writing my truth. That has stayed so constant from literally the very first play that I've ever, ever written. And oftentimes, I think particularly Black artists, female artists, we think that we're supposed to sound a certain way, write a certain way, put out a certain thing because that valid that need for validation is so strong. Yeah. And I think I have decided <laughs> very early. Oh, uh, then white people ain't gonna care about what I'm I, I'm writing. So I'm just gonna write what I want to because at the end of the day, it's for me first. I love that. So I've been an oddly selfish artist. And I think it is the thing that has saved me from stopping at any point along this journey because I literally don't care. (laughs) I don't care whether you think my characters are too Black. I don't care if you think they're too potty mouth. I don't care about what you think about my characters because I love them and I care so much about them. As, as much as they are works of fiction, I love them like they are truly my children. Mm-hmm. And so that part and that quality of my work has literally stayed constant. The only thing I think that has changed from you know my first play that I ever wrote to even the place I'm working on now is that I just write better. <laughs> my skill set is up. I can clock. I'm like, oh, that's not as good as it can be because the the pivot of the scene is happening too late. So if I move the um, turning point up, it'll create this. I know my craft now, right? Because I've done it over and over and over again. And I'm happy that um, I have been blessed enough to have the opportunity to practice because some people don't get that, right? right? They don't get productions. They don't get a TV show. Because right. real talk, I would not have won the Pulitzer were it not for P-Valley because during my first season of P-Valley, I had to write my first season over twice. Oh, wow. So I learned, I was forced <laughs> to learn about craft and I was forced to learn how to take notes and translate notes to make my work better. And so I was writing the hot wing King alongside my first season of P Valley and the, the, the actual churn of working every day to make those scripts better and better and better made me come into my playwriting process and like, Oh, I know how to get better and better. I can get better and better by myself faster. Yeah. That's kind of, that speaks to my evolution. There's one thing that stayed constant and then the other thing that changed just due to practice. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's really, I mean, it's true. I mean, I've I've been writing now, started my career as a journalist Mm -hmm. um, and did that for almost 10 years off and on. Um, But I also took notice of the ways in which like when I went to seminary, how the academic writing impacted my journalistic writing. Um, and now I'm in a 
essay writing fellowship and mm-hmm. I'm seeing the ways in which my academic writing, my journalistic writing is impacting my essay writing, mm-hmm. but vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that, that like that process of churning um, definitely impacts, makes it stronger and creates these opportunity for greater success, but also greater creativity, creative expression that you would never anticipate it. Absolutely. So you've gotten to the process of it. That's cool. That's cool. Couple more questions. One, how do you hope, or have you even given this any thought, um, that doing shows like the Hot Wing King, especially in a regional theater space, um, will impact regional theater overall? Hmm. Hope so. Um, you know, I think black actors have to face so many challenges, right? And then when you add in being gay or being lesbian or or being non-binary when it comes to like like we talked about intersectional identity like oftentimes black actors they're asked to do that one thing just to be black <laughs> yeah. yeah and i i hope that you know this play holds space for you know you know actors who want to um play something that they truly truly are in addition to allowing for the audience who sees himself in, in these characters to be front and center at those plays. Um, but I also hope it inspires writers oh. who um, want to see more plays like the Hot Wing King or want to see plays that have the char- have characters like um, the, the Hot Wing King has. You know, I, I just hope it, it, it shows them that there's space for you in in the American theater and you belong on the stage. Um, And obviously the more plays, the more of this play gets done, the more it'll feel like, oh, this is is regular, this is normal. This this American family is normal and a part of the American canon. And there's just this kind of um, butterfly effect that happens, you know, and, and hopefully other um, regional theaters will, will want to do it as well. But it's been interesting. It's like, it, not everyone is clamoring to do it. And I right. think it has a lot to do with the fact that um, I've heard like, oh, we think it'll be hard to cast. And it's like, oh, really? <laughs> Have you tried? You know? If only you knew. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Number of artists clamoring to tell these stories and be part of these stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Anything else? Anything else you want to say or make known or mention? That's it. Well, this is great questions. Thank you. I mean, I you know I try to be an exemplar interviewer at all times because my reputation hinges hinges on it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I try my best. I always want to have like conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I think they're more organic. and more impactful, especially for my writing process. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I thank you. I thank you one for taking this time out to talk to me. This again has been a moment that I get to now brag to all of my (laughs) friends um, that I've had this chance, but thank you for 
for your witness. Thank you for telling our stories. Thank you for seeing us um, because not so many people do it and, and, and holding us in your heart the way that you do. Um, because it, it, if, if you don't already know, it is having an impact um, and it's creating freedom for a lot of us in these communities. Mm. Um, I just wanted to say that. And thank you for using your access and your power to get our stories told more widely. Yeah, absolutely. It's truly an honor, you know, um, and definitely I feel a responsibility. So. Well, you're amazing and we celebrate you. This conversation with Katori was, it was a gift. It, 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 it was a professional and personal highlight. As we were wrapping up our conversation, we ventured, in, we ventured into um, a conversation about some, some other work that I am doing that is near and dear to my heart, and that is work around grief. Um, and so what you're about to hear sort of, I guess, the extended version of our conversation, it was very much unplanned, but um, we spent a little time talking about um, the realities of grief. Um, and she was picking my brain um, about my work, my research and some of the thoughts I had about the topic. So we thought that we would also give you um, uh, um, a snippet of that conversation as we wrapped up this episode. So. Take a listen. I'm currently in a doctor of ministry program where I am studying pastoral theology, faith, and grief. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm really processing how this is going to play out. Um, in the midst of the pandemic, I lost my aunt to COVID, my best friend to cancer. And then a year later, I lost my father um, while taking over a church and trying to pastor. And I realized that we as a society have just terrible grief practices. Um, I wanted to research it and figure out ways of, if nothing more, helping the church figure out better ways to provide care and be present with people who are grieving. Um, what have you found so far in terms of? I, I think what I found so far is a few things. One, as it pertains to the church, we're so used to fixing that to sit in a place is uncomfortable for us. Um, we in in church spaces we want and believe we're supposed to have all the answers mm-hmm. versus recognizing that some of the best care is really just being present with people mm. but i think what i've also realized and this is what i'm venturing into now so in my program we have these one week intensives and so i have an intensive that starts next week mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm engaging um conflict through the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, I'm ha- I have this idea that as far as the Christian faith is concerned, we started from loss. Mm. We, lost, we lost Jesus mm. operating from that space of getting back to Jesus mm. so much that it has impacted how we even walk through, walk through our grieving process. Interesting. We're so focused on Jesus coming back that we're not thinking about how Jesus' loss impacted us and the ways in which we avoided it and what that has done for how we live in the world overall. Ooh, okay. So, (laughs) I have to talk to you because I have this idea for another play um, and it's surrounding grief. And I I do think that the Hot King definitely 
is looking at how we sit and move through grief on so many different levels from EJ to Cordell. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this idea of how grief never really goes away, it just oh. mutates. Yeah. I'm interested in um, writing a play about that. And so I may end up calling you about your work because I, I find it very fascinating. Um, I'm down. Talk about it a little bit more. But anyway, so. I'm down. I'm completely down. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, like it's, it's uh, what I have realized is some three years, this is my third year of a four year program. And so next mm-hmm. week will be my last course. And then I get to spend roughly a year writing. Um, mm-hmm. So I have all these tenant pieces um, that I get a year to figure out how to put it together. But I'm very much right now. And previously, I was just sort of like, Everything that's out here is trash. Everything that the church has been doing is trash. We just need to get rid of it. Um, and so it's very reactionary. And mm. now I'm in this space of considering what's at the root. And if we have that revelation, if this is the case, if our broken relationship with loss is connected to this, mm. and we see loss throughout the biblical text, mm-hmm. then how then do we move forward? Yeah. Um, so I'm starting this semester with this thought around Jesus. So quick quick question before, you know, I let, I let you go. Um, do you feel as though those who are Buddhist, perhaps, like, you know, religions that kind of accept loss and accept death, do you feel as though their grieving practices feel more healthy and feel, I yeah. Better? You still feel a little hot. Oh. No. He was not feeling well, so we didn't let him go to school today. He's been a yeah. And then the other my baby baby was sick too. Oh no. It's been a day. Mm, I feel for y'all. That's why I don't want kids. Mm. <laughs> they are a joy and yet. They are, but then they get sick <laughs> and then they want stuff and um and my husband wants one so bad. Um and he's really trying to convince me. But yeah, I do think that there are faith walks so another part of my research will engage what i'm calling indigenous minority cultures and how they engage grief and how they engage the practice of celebrating death um and so i do think practices like buddhism even hinduism um do a much better job even in the jewish cultures jewish operate in a space of mourning for a year and what does that do? How does that impact the way in which they move forward? That is not something that they heal from. They just become better capable of harnessing it. Mm. Um, so I have this other language I'm, uh, in my writing fellowship. I'm working on this piece that talks about the gift of grief. Mm. How when we lose something, we may consider it a bad thing, but there are things that come out of loss that make us better, make us more aware, make us stronger that we don't always consider. And so what does it mean if we were approach grief through a gift of it being a moment for us? And how do I see that in other cultures? The Alliance Theater's production of The Hot Wing King runs on the Coca-Cola stage from February 10th through March 5th. Opening night is February the 18th, and tickets are still available at alliancetheater.org. We thank you so much 
for listening to another episode of the Alliance Theater Podcast. We do hope that you come back again. Until next time, bye.